Before we begin, it's a tremendous pleasure to welcome uh, Marcel Cosman and Hannah McGregor to the University of Calgary. And I do want to take this opportunity uh, to acknowledge the traditional territories, lands, and people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, including the Siksika, the Pekani, and the Kene, as well as the Tsutna and Stony Nakoda First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Again, huge pleasure. Marcel Cosman, I'll introduce first, is a PhD candidate in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta. Her research focuses on early Canadian women's SF writing, including science fiction, weird tales, fantasy, and speculation. She's also a freelance writer with work published on Ravel.ca and Guts Canadian Feminist Magazine, and she's the producer of Which Please. Dr. Hannah McGregor is an instructor and researcher in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta. Her areas of research include periodical studies, media studies, middle-brow culture, contemporary and early 20th century Canadian literature, critical race studies, and digital humanities. So all the things. All at the same time. Most recently, she co-edited joint special issues of English Studies in Canada and the Journal of Modern Periodical Studies that focus on reading magazines as a form of new media. And in her free time, she makes this podcast. So when their powers are united, Marcel and Hannah are which please? Uh, They've been featured in the online feminist journal Ravishly, in the Edmonton Journal, and on CBC Radio. And Hannah and Marcel have spoken about their experiences as feminist fandom podcasters at events including Nerd Night Edmonton and the Edmonton Comic and Entertainment Expo. And I believe they have a presentation forthcoming at the Calgary Expo as well. I'm just saying that's true because I believe in putting positive ideas out there. (laughs) Perfect. So they are truly fans, theorists, and public intellectuals, and I think they embody uh, what we were talking about, or what Heather was talking about in class last week, what fan culture critic Henry Jenkins calls the ACA fan, because through which please they open up a hybrid space for both celebrating and thoughtfully critiquing the series of texts that has come to define an entire generation of young readers. So please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Hannah McGregor and Marcel Cosman. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. I'm Marcel Cosman. And this week we bring you a very special episode. We are recording live from the University of Calgary in Dr. Derrett Mason's children's literature class with a few thousand lovely students joining us. Uh, Would you all kindly say hello to the internet? (laughs) Wonderful. Beautiful. Thank you. Good job. As Dr. Mason explained, we are both scholars from the University of Alberta, and we make a fortnightly podcast about Harry Potter and the Harry Potter world. Uh, We've been rereading the books, we've been rewatching the movies, and we've been thinking about how our perspectives as English scholars might shift how we read the books that we loved when we were young or younger. Some of us didn't start until we were old. Er. Um, so this is it's. So what we do is quite similar to what you are doing in this course. Yeah. So our conversation today is going to focus on what we call resistant fandom and the value of thinking critically about things that you really love, like. Harry Potter in our case. And we're going to focalize this conversation through the events of last week that we understand you've already started talking and thinking about, um, which is when J.K. Rowling published four new quote-unquote short stories to Pottermore about the history of magic in North America, and then the internet blew up. So the way that this is going to work is uh, we're going to talk for a little while between the two of us, um, and then when we get bored, we are going to turn it to you uh, for questions. So how does this sound? Good? Good, good, great. Okay. That was enthusiastic. Um, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) St. Patrick's Day. You're all very excited about going to the pub later. All right. Now let's stop having fun and start talking about critical theory. So we're going to start off the conversation by referring back to um, a reading that we think you did pretty early in the course, which is Maria Tatar's No More Adventures in Wonderland. Um, For those of you listening online, we're talking about a New York Times opinion piece that essentially argues that children's literature has become too dark and too fixated on adult concerns. Um, So we were chatting about this last week, and I know, Marcel, that you had a lot of issues with this piece. We collectively had some concerns with the Mm -hmm. piece, um, but there was something in particular um, that you felt uh, was a concern with the way that she was framing the conversation about children's literature. 
Yeah. The, so when so when I was thinking about this, um, it occurred to me that this is actually sort of a, a point where I uh, I disagree, but also agree with what Tatar is getting at. So essentially, what I agree with, where I agree with her, is that children's literature does deserve to be scrutinized. Children and young adult literature needs to be scrutinized. We should be thinking about what are the lessons that these that these texts are teaching children and young people and possibly also the adults who approach them for the first time as adults. Um, but where I disagree with her is is that I'm not sure that, that our concern should be that these are exposing children to adult concerns like depression or violence or abuse or a corrupt government. These are all things that children do experience all the time, so I'm not sure that we're going to do them any favors by um, protecting them by limiting their access to these kinds of stories in literature. Um, I think it's really great when children see their experiences mirrored um, or uh, talked about through metaphor in literature. I think that's wonderful. What I would like to see is um, an engagement with children and young adult literature, children's and young adult literature, uh, where we confront the kinds of inappropriate content um, like casual racism and misogyny, and sexism, and cis-sexism, and heteronormativity, and ableism. I think those are the issues that we should be thinking about when we look at children's literature. So what are the lessons that we're teaching kids? Is it that if you are a girl, you should be pretty and weak and be rescued? And if it's a boy, that you should be ashamed of your sadness and tears? (laughs) I'm not sure. I feel like those are maybe not valuable lessons. And so if those are the kinds of things that we are exposing children to, like those deserve to be interrogated, yeah. right? Yeah, so the basic premise, you know, let's think critically about what contemporary children's literature is saying and let's interrogate it and let's sort of subject it to a serious lens. We're, we're on board with that basic premise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're English scholars. We're always on board with the premise of let's subject things to critical lenses, um, <laughs> right? The question is what lens you use. Mm-hmm. And, and the lens of children are inherently distanced from violence. Children live in worlds that do not have darkness in them. That's a premise that I think is pretty hard to accept Um, If you expand your view of the world beyond a tiny, tiny, tiny little pinpoint of human experience, right? There might be a tiny subset of children who genuinely grow up not experiencing violence in any way. But I would argue that that's probably not a lot of children. Um, Mm. And more meaningfully, right, there are no children... Ooh, I'm going to get to a double negative. Let me try this again. Every child grows up in a world that's still saturated with really oppressive forms of power, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're all in that world. Um, We're all experiencing that world on a daily basis. So that's something that we can say is actually a set of of concerns that that children should have access to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I believe Marcel put it really beautifully when we were talking about the Tatar piece. She said... Um, the issue is that I think she's kind of missing the point, right? Right, and, and so that that brings us to the question of uh, of what the point is. Yeah, yeah. So the topic today, um, Rowling's new Magic in North America pieces, um, I think are are particularly interesting because if we think about Rowling's work as work for children, what is it that these pieces are essentially? Um, covertly teaching their readers, right? So we talk in our podcast a lot about separating out the author and authorial intention from the works that we're interrogating or scrutinizing or reading for pleasure. And so what I want to know from you, Hannah, is, and I wrote this down so that I would get the wording right, I wonder what you think about the fact that Rowling signed these pieces with her name rather than attributing them to a fictional writer or researcher like, for example, Newt Scamander or any of the authors of the text in the, in the Harry Potter series. So I'm curious, how does this lack of distance impact the problematic nature of these pieces, if at all? It's a great question, Marcel. Thank you. Um, I promised myself I wouldn't think about these questions in advance because I wanted to actually answer them in the moment. Um, Braver than so, me. Yeah. Uh, I think I like, I like the answers I come up with when Marcel just asks me questions on the spot. Um, so there's two things that I want to address here. One is the way... Who here has read like all of the Harry Potter series? 
Great. Okay. You guys are great. Um, okay, so you know how in the first book, Hermione is treating Hogwarts a history as though it is an unproblematic text, right? She thinks that you can just read this book and get information out of it, and that's how books work. They just are transparent representations of reality. It isn't until a later book, what's the one where Dobby is first introduced? Two. Two. <laughs> way later, way later in the series, the second book. Um, <laughs> when she becomes aware of the political problem of house elves, right? The sort of labor, that the, the hidden oppressive labor that is underlying the functioning of Hogwarts. Hermione becomes a politicized subject. Oh, that's that. in, it's in book four that she learns that there are house elves at Hogwarts. Four. Book four. I swear I just read all of these books. Um, right, she becomes politicized. And in the process of becoming politicized, her reading of Hogwarts' history changes dramatically. Right? She becomes aware that that history has selectively elided particular parts of the story of Hogwarts, parts that she thinks should have been in there, like the magical food that appears on your table. Yeah, that was made by house elves. That's not magic. People are laboring. Right? So we actually watch within the series the process of Hermione becoming a resistant reader. So Harry Potter textualizes a critical reading of the documentation of the history of the wizarding world, right? When those texts appear in the novels, the characters model for us how to read them resistantly. Had these stories been posted to Pottermore as texts written by characters within the wizarding world, it would have given us as readers a space from which to, to be critical of them in a different way. Right? Much in the same way that Hermione is critical of Hogwarts a history. We would have been able to look at these stories and say, okay, so these come from within the wizarding world. They are a particular representation of that world from within that world. And so we can think not just about the information we get out of them, but we can think about how they tell us about the process of history making. Mm -hmm. right? And that's a really interesting question. But that's not what happened. They were posted to Pottermore as new short stories by Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling. They were posted with the authority of the author attached to them. And that forces us to read them in really different ways, right? That forces us to think, this is what Rowling herself is telling us about this world she's created, right? She is backing up these stories as the version of the history of magic in North America that she wants to tell us. Um, and that's a really significant difference, right? And I think that's the significant difference that's allowing for the particular kind of critical resistant readings that you've been seeing in a lot of the blog posts that you have read for this class, mm -hmm. right? Where people are feeling betrayed by the author. That feeling of betrayal, I think, is directly linked to exactly what you pointed out, which is her yeah. attaching her name and therefore authorizing them, right? Mm -hmm. The word to authorize something, same root as the word author, um, right? She's authorizing them with her celebrity, with her authority mm -hmm. as the writer. Yeah, in the, in the world that we live in, um, people, indigenous peoples and colonized peoples um, are constantly writing against the dominant history narratives, right? We, we constantly see this in, um, oh my goodness, post-colonial studies. Um, that's the field. That's a field that I have been a part of once. Um, yeah, so we constantly see this happening. And so had Rowling published them by, had Rowling published them as having been written by characters within the world, it would have been possible for her to respond to the criticism by having characters write back against this narrative, right? It would have been possible to say this narrative is skewed and it is incorrect. However, by publishing them under her name, that just makes them canon. It just it gives them this it gives them the air of fictional truth. Which yeah, is and that's how weird. she's responded on social media, right? Like people have come back and said, like, oh, could you explain to me a little bit more about the way in which you're using the idea of skinwalkers, right? Which is an appropriated um, you know, actual belief. Um, and her response was, Well, in my world, this is what skinwalkers are. Mm -hmm. Right? So she's claimed control over this reality in a way that is important because it informs how we're going to think critically about it. Mm -hmm. It also, it, I just, there's another thing that really, really, really got to me when I was reading that piece. Um, it, it also really troubles me that she, the way that she appropriates that, um, 
that story is she says that it has its basis in fact, as though it doesn't. As though in our world where we live every day, as though skinwalkers aren't real. That's the implication, right? What she's saying is... It's a radical thing to say, you thought this was a myth, but it has its basis in fact. And it was like, yeah, no, we know it already did. It already did have a basis in fact, just not yours. Yeah, that's why the story exists. The story is there because it's been passed down for generations and the people for whom that story is important and sacred, it has its basis in fact. You don't get to decide that. Anyway, sorry, we're getting mad. Um, okay. All right. So let's, let's shift the conversation now into this question of critical resistant responses, right? We're going to talk a little bit now about some of those response posts that you read. So Marcel, Mm -hmm. um, another piece that the class read, uh, is the Walker Raxbert post magic and marginalization in which the author who identifies as both a Lakota feminist and an ardent Harry Potter fan explains why she often, and this is a quote from her piece, has to check her Lakota feminist lens at the door or else spend the whole TV show or movie being angry and dissatisfied Mm -hmm. end quote, which I think resonates for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think it's necessary as someone who is both a feminist and a fan of Harry Potter to turn off your critical and political lens in order to enjoy Rowling's work? So, um, I feel a little bit like the answer I'm going to give is a kind of non-answer. Um, and what I'm going to say is that I think, so this, so this answer coming from me personally, I think that I enjoy a tremendous amount of privilege in my reading of these texts because there's not a lot of my brain that I have to turn off in order to enjoy them, right? So for years when I was reading these texts, I didn't actually have to turn any parts of my brain off. I could just enjoy them at face value because the stories were beautiful and wonderful and they made me feel good. And it's nice to feel good. It's really nice to feel good when you read books, right? It's really nice to read good books and then be happy. (laughs) Yeah, that's a nice, it's a nice thing to enjoy. Um, But I think that what happens is that some of us choose to or end up um, incidentally educating ourselves, right? And so the more we learn, um, the more we start to lose that privilege. We start to become politicized readers, and then all of a sudden more sparks go off when you read these things. More things become troubling and and distressing. Um, But I do think that for many of us, mostly white people, although lots of like lots of people have lots of different kinds of privilege, right? Um, but speaking for me personally, as a white middle class cisgender whatever woman, um, <laughs> whatever, uh, whatever um, I have, I really do have to choose to politicize my reading, um, and that's a choice that I made. And I feel good about that. Um, does it mean that I enjoy the series less? Not necessarily, because what I've also found is that the skills that I've developed in order to politicize my reading have also made those texts richer and more interesting to me. So, like, for example, and I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget, uh, the way in which materiality functions in the text, that's something that I learned through politicizing my reading, right? Understanding that different types of books have different material resonances. They mean different things to different people. Yeah. So Marcel noticed something really, really interesting in our rereading where the kinds of books you see people read tells you a lot about them in the stories themselves. Mm -hmm. So you see some characters reading comics in the story and that's supposed to like tell you something about the status of those characters. Yeah. It's supposed to signal to you that those are dumb characters because they're not doing real reading, which is ridiculous because comics are great. Comics are great. So... I would say that I enjoy them differently. The more politicized I become as a reader, the more I enjoy them differently. But again, I really need to emphasize that this is coming from my place of privilege, right? So if you are a person, if you are a person who uh, comes from a people who have been colonized, ethnically cleansed, who have survived genocide, um, all of a sudden those readings that you do, it's not, you are already in and of yourself a politicized subject because people have been trying to eradicate you. Um, And so the type of reading that you do is going to be fundamentally different than the type of reading that I do. And I can absolutely see how it would be necessary to enjoy, to turn off your political brain in order to enjoy something. Thank you. That was really thoughtful. Thanks. I wrote it down so that I wouldn't forget. Great. Great. It's the opposite (laughs) of what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So related to this, feel like we're building up here. 
Um, as much as there's been a substantial, and I was a very eloquent backlash to the history of magic in North America pieces, we've also seen a backlash against the backlash, right? We've seen fans of JK Rowling jump to her defense often with the claim, it's just fiction, what's the problem? And so what I want to know from you, Hannah, is if you can talk a little bit about the differences between these two approaches. I'm really curious why it is that defending Rowling and these texts is fundamentally different from what it is that we do when we critique them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So so what we're talking about is the sort of battle we're seeing playing out within the Rowling and Harry Potter fandom right now, right? Where some people are reading these new stories and, and re- responding critically, and I mean critically in the doubled sense right now, right, of using a sort of critical thinking lens to talk about what's going on in those stories. But also in this case, being critical of them, right? Like actually saying there's something wrong with these pieces, which is not always what you do when you're using a critical lens. Um, <laughs> But so people are responding critically, um, and then a whole bunch of fans are coming back and saying, um, "It's just fiction, right?" <laughs> in As that though, voice. That's I'm sorry. That's the voice <laughs> in which those people are tweeting. It's just fiction, um, right? They're saying uh, this isn't a legitimate way to read a fictional text. The author has the right to invent whatever they want within the fictional world that they are constructing. Um, you know, authors have absolute control over their texts and their fictional realms. Um, if we are going to start policing the creativity of authors, we're going to, you know, end up with like really, really bad early 20th century socialist art, and nobody wants that. Um, you've seen brutalist buildings; that's what they look like. They're really dispiriting, um, and so we need to just give authors absolute freedom to do whatever they want, and nothing that happens within fiction is subject to critique. <sighs> okay, so like, I'm already, I'm pretty biased against an interpretation like that because I literally make my le- my living subjecting fictional texts to critique, right? So I'm probably going to be on board with the idea that we get to think critically about texts, right? What I think is important here um, is the kind of arguments about the nature of fiction that are being forwarded by the people who are defending Rowling, right? So when I say... Um, I read these stories and I took deep issue with them. One of the things that I'm saying by implication is that I think that fiction has real power in the world. Mm -hmm. I think that fiction really, really matters. I think that the stories that we tell really, really matter. I think that Harry Potter really, really matters, right? Because multiple generations have grown up reading these stories and thinking about these stories. They have force in the world. When somebody comes back and says, they're just fiction, They're just stories. Nothing that the author says should be subjected to a critical lens. What you're saying is fiction doesn't actually matter that much. The stories we tell don't actually matter that much. And I take fundamental issue with that premise, Mm. right? And I think what we're arguing over here is not my reading versus your reading, right? It's not you're saying, oh, I've interpreted the stories in this way, and I have interpreted those stories in a different way, and we're going to dispute that based on um, rigorous textual analysis and secondary <laughs> criticism properly formatted according to MLA standards. Um, what they're saying is, no, you're not allowed to read critically. That's not okay. That's not an okay thing to do with books. right? And that fundamental premise that to enjoy something, I have to not think about it, um, that undermines things that I value. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if we're going to argue about the meaning of them, absolutely. Let's argue all day about the meaning of these texts. But don't tell me that they're fiction and so I'm not allowed to think critically about what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's not how fiction works. If we, if we love books, then we need to believe that they actually have a force in the world. If we believe they have a force in the world, then we need to think critically about them. Yeah. No negotiation available. None. If, yeah, like if stories didn't matter religion wouldn't be a thing and history wouldn't be a thing. <laughs> like, Oh my God, we just got our first ever slow clap. It was really exciting. <laughs> like, like as somebody who loves my religion with my whole entire heart, it's built on stories. Like that's what it, that's how we get, I mean, like you can't go through an entire lifetime of human beings on the planet passing information down generation after generation and be like stories don't matter stories aren't real you know it's real (laughs) science (laughs) science is stories it's stories about what happens in a beaker (laughs) 
and other other sciencey things. So I'm told. <laughs> Like, it's how you remember not to put metal in the microwave. Somebody tells you a story that you're going to blow up your microwave if you do that, and then you forget, and then you put metal in the microwave, and it starts to pop and explode, and then you tell people a story about it later, and you're like, yeah, I put that gold leaf plate in the microwave, and man, that was a bad idea. I forgot that gold was a metal. Burned my whole house down. So now that we've started talking about rigorous scientific analysis, <laughs> um, I think that it is time to throw the control of the conversation over to you folks and see what kinds of questions you have. Are there any questions from you to start? Does anyone want to... Be brave. We're super nice. Do you want... Here. Hi, I'm Brenda Fox, the bug eater from Ripley's Believe It or Not. Hello. Um, first, congratulations on doing this with children in the house and just keeping f- going forward. Here, here. See, he's heard so many swear words. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, as women, that's one of the things we have to do mm-hmm. just to carry on. Okay. Anyway, so we just, I, I was the one who applauded when you said if, um, I have to go back a minute, if, if we if, didn't have stories, we wouldn't have religions. That's right. But I'm often astounded, and I'm sorry, I'm not a lover of religions. I'm on the opposite side. That's okay. And raising my child as such. But I'm often astounded at um, friends of mine that I meet that come from different backgrounds and cultures, and yet they still, you know, practice Christianity and such, even though we know history has shown that it has oppressed committed genocide as in Canada and Australia in the name of Mm. religion, right? So that's a big topic. Has anybody in this room read Thomas King's, read or listened to Thomas Thomas King's The Truth About Stories? It's a really, I do really recommend it. You can find it on, I know that cool, hip, young people love listening to CBC archives online. So um, you can find it. It's one of his Massey lectures, and you can find it online on the CBC archives, The Truth About Stories. Strongly recommend it. Um, And in it, he's a sort of major um, Canadian indigenous public intellectual and writer. And in it, he he spends a lot of time thinking through um, the power of the stories that we tell. Right, um, and he has this recurring line in it where he says, "The truth about stories is that that's all we are, um, that we are the stories that we choose to tell." Um, and I think that it it can be tempting and kind of fun to take a whole religion and be like, "Well, that's a bad one. Its stories are bad," right? Um, but I think it's too easy. Right? I think that there are ways of telling stories differently. I think that there are ways to take the same stories and um, embody them differently. To use you know, I mean, we can read critically, so I can go back and read the Bible and think about it differently and do something different with those stories, and people have done different things with those stories, mm-hmm. or you can choose to take a set of stories and use them to do something really, really awful, um, and that, that actually just comes back to the seriousness of not only the stories we tell, but how we read them. Right? When, we, when we make a decision to read a story in one particular way and say the way that we're reading it is to justify our absolute dominance over the entire world, our destruction of the environment, mm-hmm. um, committing genocide on other people who don't same, share the same religion or skin color as us, then you did a bad job of reading. Sorry, I'll hold the mic further away when I yell. It's so hard for Marcel to edit because she speaks in a moderate tone and I shout. Um, you feel but, things deeper than I do. I'm just really excited. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, <clears throat> let's call that really shitty textual analysis. <gasps> you swore. I swore. <laughs> so we we have this thing in Judaism called uh, midrash, and it is where you take stories and you literally analyze them over and over again and retell stories about them. And um, this has been going on for millennia. And uh, it is one of the cool things um, about Judaism, and it is one of the things that makes Jews a particular story people. And yet, that has not prevented the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. So, you know, like, <laughs> like stories aren't going to save you either. Stories are, oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it is everything about what you do with them and not, not to turn this into an Israel-Palestine conversation because yeah, that will take all about. day. We're talking about how we read. That yes. is the question, right? But I think the question of, of religion is relevant because it is about how we read. It's about what kinds of stories we legitimize. Um, part of the genocide of indigenous people was 
as um, sort of a statement that stories that were passed on orally were not legitimate in the same way that stories were passed on textually. That's still a fight over what stories count and what stories don't, right? So it still comes down to this, like, the truth is, stories really matter. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm coming. There's travel time with the microphone. Okay, while he's traveling, I'm going to say I'm admiring a lot of people who are in fun green shirts today. It's fun green plaid in the back. Um, I'm Andrea Oakenshield. Hello. Um, so my question is, uh, I wrote it down because I'm frazzled. I do um, that too, don't worry. Yeah, good company. There's a lot of different views on J.K. Rowling, especially like in my various friend groups and depending on the intersections of privilege that my friends have. Um, but one of the biggest contentions that I've heard from different people is that at least she's including indigenous content at all into her stories. Oh, oh um, no. And so I may not agree with how she's executed this, um, but how do you see authors moving forward um, to respectfully bring in this content into fiction, um, especially when cultural invisibility is one of the most pervasive issues for indigenous peoples mm -hmm. currently? We, a good question. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the bus on the way here, actually, because mm -hmm. we... Um, so what we... The point that we were both making is that um, she just didn't do adequate research, right? Like, if J.K. Rowling really wanted to thoughtfully include indigenous culture in these stories, she could have done research or this really radical idea, which is pay people money who are already familiar with the subject and get information from them. Like, we do this as academics. You hire research assistants because you don't have... You research assistants, not yeah. with, a, with a TS, not with a CE. I said it the wrong way in my head. Humans who assist in your research. Research yes. assistants. Yeah. Um, because you don't necessarily have the time to do all of the research that you want, but you want to make sure that the things that you are writing down and putting your name on are accurate representations of the things that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and so you hire people to do that work for you. Rowling can afford to hire a research assistant. She has... Doesn't she have more money than the queen? I think she donated Someone a whole bunch that. of it. Okay, so she's not like a fundamentally bad person, but she made a really bad choice. Yeah. She made a really lazy, lazy choice. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the really important things as we're thinking about sort of the challenge of... Um, writing text, writing back to a history of structural exclusion um, is to think about how inclusion itself is not an adequate gesture, right? Um, we know this. Simply inviting people to the party is not an adequate move to um, uh, work against years, centuries, generations of um, structural oppression, mm -hmm. right? Like, we see the challenge in... Um, uh, you know, the problem of getting more women in STEM fields. Like, oh, well, we created scholarships specially for women, but they're still not doing it. Well, mm -hmm. it's not enough to invite people. You have to actually change conditions such in a way that, that things become inclusive, right? So if you want to, if you want to actually meaningfully address that history, um, probably the first good starting point is um, to, like, reach out to indigenous scholars mm -hmm. to pay them to have conversations with them, to engage in a meaningful dialogue, um, rather than just saying, like, well, I googled uh, history of North America, because I'm pretty sure that she researched by reading a Wikipedia article. I'm pretty convinced that that's the case. Feels like it. Yeah. yeah. Other questions? I'm here at the back. Yes. I'm Levi. I guess just with, like, J.K. Rowling, um, the whole idea about, like, the First Nations appropriation and everything... I think it could almost be one of those things where she might have like possibly seen it and maybe just took it and almost went against research. Because you even look at her work, you look at like Remus Lupin is named after Romulus and Remus, son of the wolf, the she-wolf mm -hmm. from like the Roman ancient times. Yeah, it's great. His name is Wolf-Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody noticed that he was a werewolf. His name is Wolf-Wolf. Yeah, exactly. So like it just goes back into something where you're using such historical context in some fields and then you go to something on the other side of the world and you completely just ignore it. So it's almost one of those things where if maybe she could get away with it, she knew that she could just call it hers, put her name on it, and then just kind of roll with it because she knew she's J.K. Rowling. She doesn't have to deal with it. I mean, that is literally colonialism. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> it's not... So, like, that is 100% possible. It is probable. She is British. The British are very good at colonizing... They're very good at like going to places, claiming it is theirs, putting their name on it. Yeah. 
that is like, like, a thing. Like, and, and it is. I mean, and that's what one of these pieces said. This is literally the same process as, col as colonization, right? Like, you, you go over to another place and you say, um, well, this is mine now, uh, so this history is mine now, so I'm just going to take it, right? Um, I, think, I think we do, in fact, need to read the gestures deliberate. We know she knows how to research, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the Harry Potter books are full of research, and so it was a deliberate choice to not. Um, and so then the question becomes how we read that deliberate choice, right? Um, and... Uh, I, yeah, I haven't heard a convincing support of legitimizing the choice that she made so far. It doesn't mean that I'm closed down to it. Um, but it's hard, especially because she hasn't responded. It's really hard to sort of come up with any way to read this other than as mm -hmm. um, a really, really bad move. There was a really, f I'm just thinking of a comment a student made last class who normally sits on this side of the room about the trailer and how the trailer for Magic in North America actually kind of foreshadows a type of colonialism. Is this, I'm wondering if the student is here so, and is willing to repeat her comment. Maybe not. But the trailer opens with this boat, right? This boat that is sailing ostensibly to North America, oh. right? And has these like very strong echoes and references right. to, I mean, colonialism, right? So it's, I mean, it's like, trailer it's right looks there like in Pocahontas. the trailer. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So like this is, so maybe it's a long con, right? Like maybe this is just to like build up interest and she's actually going to be like, surprise, I am doing research. That was just to get you worked up. I, I, you know what? Even if it is, it doesn't make it okay. It's yeah. not, it's I mean, not it's okay. promotional, right? She's trying to get attention for the movies. Um, and that's fine. Unlike some other people, we do not take fault with JK Rowling for wanting to make more money off her intellectual property. That's a weird criticism. Like, Oh, she's just doing this for the money. Like, it's, 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 it's okay. People are allowed to <laughs> make money. Um, uh, right. But the question then becomes sort of how you go about doing, um, doing it. And if this is in fact a long con, it's a long con in which she has done meaningful damage to yeah. a portion of her fans um, who are already people who have a lot of meaningful damage done to them on a regular basis. Um, mm. And so I call shenanigans. Yeah. Look at me not swearing. Muggle. Nope, sorry. Mulligan. That's what Mulligan. I... Nope, Mug I don't know. Mugglegan. You're welcome. <laughs> Any other questions? Comments? I feel like Ricky Lake. <laughs> you what look a little like Ricky Lake. What time does this class end? Uh, in half an hour, so okay. at Amazing. 1.45. Amazing, yeah. thank you. Hi, my name is Morgan, and in the first podcast, you touched on Hermione and her intellect, and how surprised or confused you were when she, with all her knowledge and insight, froze up with the troll in the bathroom, and then later coaches Ron on how to do the spell, and then um, she convinces Harry that he needs to take the potion to continue on. So in class, we've talked about the idea of Hermione as the real hero to the series. Uh, so what do you think about that? I got, I got an email from a friend of mine from a, a bunch of years ago um, who, you know, the, like, like in, in like 10 years, you'll have all these Facebook friends who you knew during your undergrad who you like don't stay in touch with, but you like see pictures of them and their engagement, their new dog, and you're like really happy for them and it's great. So, um, so he got you're in touch welcome. with me. welcome. Look down the well of aging. <laughs> it's a beautiful process. You're all going to be best friends forever. Don't worry about it. Um, so he got in touch with me to be like, hey, Marcel, I love the podcast. You guys are doing a great job, but here is why you were too hard on Hermione in your first episode. And he uh, just and side note for you guys, Marcel really, really loves it when men send her long messages correcting her. That's her favorite <laughs> thing. And so the thing that he was so he was taking particular issue with with our analysis of Hermione doing this thing where she froze up in the bathroom with the troll, <laughs> and that and and so he gave me all these reasons why. Um, that was completely understandable and so on and so forth. And I felt like he was missing, I felt like he was missing the point of, um, the like humanizing Hermione, right? Like it, it's not as interesting as being like, well, you know, here's the, oh, you know what? No, I'm on a, I okay. can't talk. Right. I need you Marcel's to, upset. I need you. It's I'm not as so interesting mad. as actually thinking about the way that, you know, when we have this, this trio of heroes being set out for us, what kinds of attributes are, you know, associated with, with each character, um, and how really the question, the, one of the lovely questions that, um, uh, that the Harry Potter series invites us to ask is how do we define heroism, mm -hmm. right? Because what's really important is that our trio of heroes um, are all Gryffindors, right? And so they're all being characterized for us from the beginning as 
characterized by, ooh, that was a terrible sentence, as defined by their heroism, their bravery, mm -hmm. right? But that, that heroism, that bravery plays out in radically different ways between those three characters mm -hmm. in a way that when we triangulate them, massively expands what we consider to be brave or heroic behavior, right? And so Harry is this sort of, you know, rush in, um, do anything that he needs to kind of character. Which Hermione critiques him for later on in the series, right? And she critiques him legitimately because he makes really, really bad moves as a result of being excessively rash in the kinds of ways that we associate with um, sort of traditional masculine-coded heroism, right? Um, you're sort of, uh, I'm thinking... Uh, what's that guy's name? What's that guy's name in the Iliad? What's the hero of the Iliad? Homer. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's in the Odyssey. Did he marry Penelope? The Iliad. The Achilles. Yeah. With the heel. Disco. Yeah, I was like, you know, the thing. That... You're all welcome. Um, right? Like, I, that, he's like, hey, Harry's a little bit of an Achilles-style hero, right? He's like, oh, you... You hurt my friend. I'll just I'll just kill you now. Um, and that's sort of his solution to things, right? But but against that, we've got Ron's form of heroism, which is actually a remarkably sort of domestic um, heroism rooted in social relations, friendship, and loyalty. And we've got Hermione's form of heroism, which is rooted in critical thinking. Um, and what is necessary is a sort of relationship between the three of them. Um, and so I think it's for one thing. I think it's incredibly fun to just reread the series and think about what it would be like if it was just a series about Hermione, which somebody has done in the lovely video, Hermione Granger and the Goddamn Patriarchy, which is a retelling of the entire story from the perspective of Hermione as though she's the hero. But it's also really fun to think about what if we, what if we're, we resist the sort of only one character can be the hero model and think about what happens if we recognize multiple for, simultaneous forms of heroism functioning within the text and how does that maybe complicate our idea of what it means to be a heroic person. Okay, so I tried writing mine up on the screen. My name's Anya, um, and it was kind of a jumble, and this will be a jumble. But um, one of the things I always enjoyed about the books was I loved that the Weasleys were a large family. Mm -hmm. um, I come from a relatively large family, and I find that people, there aren't a lot of representation for that these days, and you everything seems to fit a family of four. Two kids, one boy, one girl. So... I was loving your podcast, was liking all the things you're saying, up until the point where you really ragged on the Weasleys and oh. on the decision they had to make a lot of children. Um, and to me, they seem like a very happy family for the most part. They have issues, mm -hmm. but everyone does. And I think that that's a perfectly valid choice to have a large family. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4... Three, two, one. None of the kids... Okay, well, some of them died, but not because of being a large family. <gasps> Spoilers. Um, so how do you fit <laughs> And a relatively low a percentage family? are terrible. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Versus, like, the Malfoys, they had a, just the... What? Oh, yeah, they did a bad job. 100% bad kids. Yeah. 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 How do you fit uh, what you said about a large family into your feminist viewpoint and the decisions that they made and the validity of those? I, I'm trying to remember now because I it's a it's a sort of running joke that I don't re-listen to the episodes because I edit them and so I can't I can't listen to them again because I'm like oh god you made a mistake there you should have done this differently um, so I'm trying to remember and I think that that was coming up when I was talking about <clears throat> we were talking about um, reproductive rights and reproductive healthcare access um, in the wizarding world and I think that the argument that I was making is that um, the Weasleys, because <clears throat> they continued to have children until they had a girl, suggests that they wanted a girl and that they um, were making that choice deliberately. Um, so, but what I remember saying is that they love all their children, but I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling to remember what we said that made you feel like we um, were, that we had a problem with the idea of large families. That must have been a different podcast that you mm -hmm. talked about that. This one okay. came out of the idea that Hogwarts has tons of food, and this was the only oh. chance these kids had to get proper meals. Oh, I think it's probably a that's on to the you. Fact that the, yeah, no, that was probably me. That was probably me. Yeah, um, and uh, I mean, I think that was probably a reference to the poverty of the of the Weasley family. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the tropes that the novel is trading on are the sort of 
um, working class Irish Catholic family with a lot of kids, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, and I am absolutely guilty of this, the dominance that you are noticing of um, narratives that talk about, you know, for kids in a family, that is, um, that's a sort of Protestant ideal, particularly a sort of Presbyterian ideal of what the family ought to look like, right? And one of the ways in which we sort of, we look at the history of anti-Catholic sentiment in Western culture um, and the way that sort of once Protestantism takes over and starts driving the kinds of stories that are told, the Catholic is usually uh, sort of constructed as... um, uh, so this sort of out of control, um, like lust driven, right? The sort of the number of children um, is a sign. It's class coded. Um, it's sort of religious coded in a way that was historically racialized because Irish Catholics, this is a good thing to talk about on St. Patrick's Day, Irish Catholics oh. were historically racialized, um, sort of excluded from the dominant whiteness that was primarily extended to Protestants, right? To white Protestants. Um, and so uh, I would say insofar as we, um, as I, may have made jokes about the Weasley family, that was me being a shitty Scottish Presbyterian. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely a sort of like, psh, people have a lot of family. What's up with you? Look at all your kids. Have less kids. Get some cats. Um, right? Like that, oh, wow. is, that is absolutely a sort, of, um, like a sort of prejudice that extends out of a particular history of um, dismissing working class experiences and working class families as though their their lives are somehow less legitimate than middle class families. Yeah, it might it might also be a really good example of the ways in which our um, privileges come out and just mm-hmm. like we we as much as we try to be like really thoughtful and political feminists and we try to take intersectionality very seriously, we we make mistakes all the time and we offend people yeah um, which is why the most important thing to do is to engage in ongoing conversation with people right about things that you care about mm-hmm. so that i mean we model it in a very small way on the podcast by talking things back and forth and disagreeing with each other and challenging each other's readings very rarely to the point of shouting um i edit those out yeah um but then we also have listeners come back and say like oh you made this claim and i have a problem with that claim and and part of our responsibility as feminist critics and as part of a community of fans is to listen and be like oh yeah no you're right that was Mm -hmm. bad that was bad let's think again about how we want to read that Mm -hmm. yeah it's a good question some great questions on top hat so i think i'm going to read a couple of top hat questions if you guys are okay with that absolutely so there's someone who'd like to hear your thoughts on the racial hierarchy in the harry potter world i.e house elves muggle-born pure blood and real world racism this is coming from a tweet by J.K. Rowling saying that, um, this is in relation to magic in North America, that there was a mutual respect and a sense of kinship between all wizards, no matter what the race. Um, right, and so this is when she was discussing the news stories and, uh, you know, in relation to kind of history, histories of colonialism. What do you make of these hierarchies and how they fit into, I guess, the real world factor? I, I need Marcel to answer this because I haven't read the seventh book yet. So I feel like some important stuff happens in the seventh book that's going to bear on on this. Probably, but what I was actually thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking book four because. Um, so okay, so authors are wrong about their work all the time. Okay, this that's is why just you're not a, allowed to argue authorial intention. Yeah, because they're not great readers. You're great readers. Yeah. So for so for Rowling, she may believe that, and that's awesome. Like <laughs> I think that it is so great when you believe that the world is full of people who love each other equally and genuinely don't have things like hierarchies of power. But she's wrong. Um, and one of the ways that we can see that is in the way that people, the way that the um, international wizard, wizarding community comes together at the Wizarding World Cup, right? So um, just as like a kind of maybe cute example, you have the, I think it's the president of Bulgaria who's pretending not <laughs> to speak any English so that whoever it is who's who's walking him around, I don't know, I can't I remember. If, is it, it fudge? fudge? It might be Fudge. Um, that So he's like, he's like trolling the British Minister for Magic, um, and he's doing that because he's like a wealthy, powerful person. You couldn't do that if you were like a. It wouldn't be. It, 
the reason that the joke is funny is because those two people are on a particular equilibrium of power, right? Um, so that's a kind of cute example. But you also see the way in which um, the different nationalities are reduced to cultural stereotypes and tropes, right? So the Irish obviously get drunk and rowdy and throw a big party when they win the, the World Cup. Um, so everything may be benignly intentioned, but that doesn't mean that there isn't structural differences in power. The other thing that I would add to this, um, and this is coming more from a theoretical side than out of necessarily the books themselves, um, is that we have reason to be suspicious of the ideas of um, universal humanism, right? This sort of discourse of um, we're all the same under our skin, mm. and if we would just see that, we would all get along in perfect harmony. Historically, that idea of universal humanism has actually been a remarkably violent idea because the thing that happens when you construct a category called the human, you have to figure out what you're going to exclude from it, right? You have to figure out what borders you're going to draw around that category such that everybody inside it gets to all be equal and really happy and everybody outside it um, does not get to participate of those privileges. And historically, humanism as an ideal has, for example, excluded women and people of color, Right? So humanism, philosophical ideal of humanism, actually meant white European menism. Um, but it doesn't have the same ring to it. Uh, and that sort of gesture of all wizards care for each other equally, all wizards are equal, really smacks of humanism for me. And I think that the novels reveal that to us by showing us exactly who falls just on the outsides of counting as part mm -hmm. of that wizarding community. So centaurs are... Filthy half-breeds. Are filthy half-breeds, right? Centaurs are, are rational thinking creatures, but because they are not wizards, they don't get to be included in this community if we all care about each other, right? Mm -hmm. House elves have magic, but they don't get to be part of that community of, you know, the universal wizarding community. So I think that the text actually highlight for us an interesting, in interesting ways the way that the claim to universality, the claims of humanism, actually rely on strategic kinds of exclusion. Hi, I'm Madison. I just wanted to build on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So because... Uh, JK does uh, deal so much with this hierarchy mm -hmm. and she creates all of this racism that she then tries to work against in her books. Mm -hmm. How is it that when it comes to dealing with the real world or like trying to work in within our canon of history, how does it backfire so bad? Like she has so much practice in trying to rectify this in her own world and fantasy is supposed to be where uh, we as humans try and work out a lot of our societal problems. So it's just, any that's thoughts? A, that's a hard question. Racism um, is really, really complicated, right? Mm -hmm. um, when we try to account for it in universal ways that try to account for it in all the forms that it's taken all over the world, what we're going to do is miss a lot of the really important details, right? We're going to miss a lot of what actually matters for how forms of oppression um, unfolded in different places, right? And so we might we might notice equivalencies, for example, in the British colonization of India and the British colonization of North America. But we can't then say the experience of a person who grew up in India and the experience of an indigenous person who grew up in Canada are equivalent, mm -hmm. right? Because we have missed the ways in which oppression, while it might be part of these large systems, operates in really different ways in different places. Mm -hmm. um, and so Rowling is writing out of a particular historical and cultural context. And I would say she's generally pretty good at thinking about that, right? She misses some, some things. Mm -hmm. She messes up some things, right? But she is talking, she's talking about 20th century British history. She's thinking through the problem of Margaret Thatcher and the sort of, you know, ongoing inheritance of Nazism and fascism in Europe. Like, those are the histories she's yeah. working out. They are particular histories. Um, when you pick up those histories and try to transplant them to a totally different place, um, it, they're not going to work. They're not going to have the same explanatory power. Um, 
And so that's why, you know, if she wanted to do an equally good job of talking about North America, she would need to immerse herself as deeply into the complex histories of North America as she's immersed herself in Europe, Mm -hmm. um, which is really hard to do, right? And so I would say that that what has happened here is a sort of um, mistaking of equivalences. It also it also feels to me like it also smacks to me of that thing that people say with the intention of sounding good but is actually really offensive and problematic is when they say um I don't see race. Right? They're like, "Oh, I just see I just see like individual cases of problems that can be solved because we are all equal, right? So like you provide people with enough means and enough opportunity and therefore everyone will be able to do the exact same thing because we all grow up in the same circumstances, except that we don't all grow up in the same circumstances. So to say something like, I don't see race is already coming from a particular privilege where you don't see yourself as raced because you don't experience race, but you definitely see other people's race you just don't want to acknowledge that you have more power than they do and therefore the opportunities that you had are not just because you merited them more than another person but it's because you already come with a whole set of benefits and stuff which comes back to the thing right it does um she may work really hard as a person to think through her privilege um and she may have totally messed up in this case Right, And then the, the good feminist gesture, if that's genuinely what happened, the feminist gesture, the critical gesture that you make is to come forward and say, wow, I really messed up. I am really sorry to the communities who I hurt. I'm mm-hmm. going to try better. Right, So maybe that's going to be her response. And then we'll all be like, high five, rolling. Good job. So you've... Oh, Teresa. Hi. Um, so you've kind of touched on it, but I'm really interested in the hierarchy of... Um, of the witches and wizards themselves, um, what do you feel about the token characters like Pavardi or um, Cho, who Rachel Rostad wrote a really great poem on? Um, how do you feel about those token characters? Because I think what has come out of the North American thing is just another level of J.K. Rowling being herself. <laughs> I mean, tokenism is exactly it, right? Like, if we think back to... If you if you have ever seen any television programs from the, like, early, mid-90s, they all have a token black character, and that token black character is just steeped in cultural stereotypes, and it's really... It's really disturbing. And this is, I guess, going back to that earlier question about um, inclusion, right? And so tokenism is the gesture of including without meaningfully integrating and considering the histories, right? So, um, ah. Yeah, which also brings us back to that question of like, oh, well, we're all the same under our skin, right? right? So I can just include, I can just select one person out of this culture and one person out of this culture and look, now I've created diversity, mm-hmm. right? Not, what you're not recognizing is, you know how every single one of you comes from a radically individual set of human experiences, which are informed by the various ways in which you're embodied, including race, gender, ability, um, etc. You know, that's like an experience you have of being in the world. Um, that's also like how how characters should work, right? Mm-hmm. So when you when you sort of just pluck a character out of a different context and say. Um, Like, here, I've included them now. I Mm -hmm. have dealt with this question of diversity. Um, I think you're also just... I think it's not good writing. It's not. Yeah, it's not. We've and we've talked a little bit when whenever we talk about um, the backlash against a black Hermione, we often come back to this idea that some characters are racially coded and others are not. And the ones who are not, white readers will tend to read as white. Um, and so it be, so what's the point that I want to make with this? The point is that race is attached to characters in the Harry Potter world only when they're being treated as tokens who are supposed to be textual gestures towards the diversity, right? The characters who are not being racialized and tokenized are not explicitly raced in any way. And that has meant that somebody could come along and say, Hermione was black the whole time. You never said otherwise. Um, But it's also really indicative that the fandom responded and said, surely not. Surely she's white. Because when white readers read characters who are not explicitly raced, they read those characters as white. We read those characters as white, right? Because that is how privilege functions. Hi, I'm Erin. 
I was talking with a friend who lives in the UK a few days ago on Twitter about the new Magic in North America stories, and this kind of connects to your idea of people coming from different experiences, and it's a bit about reader response, so I won't go too into the actual part of JK Rowling here. Um, so my friend mentioned that the way that history is taught in Britain, because she went to, I think, up till grade eight there, and then came here for high school. So she experienced both of the ways that our different school systems whitewash colonialism and kind of, mm -hmm. you know, shove the disastrous effects of it aside in different ways. And she was saying and wondering if there are different biases that we grew up with as Canadian students or as British students. And I was wondering if in your huge knowledge of the Twitterverse and all this <laughs> criticism that's come out, if you have seen any differences in how readers and scholars in Britain have responded, critiqued, or interacted with the new pieces compared to those of us in North America? Uh, I would say that um, almost all of the meaningful critique that we've noticed has been coming out of North American contexts. Um, you know, primarily a lot of really meaningful critique coming from indigenous scholars and thinkers saying like, I have a legitimate issue with this. Um, uh, what I would add to that context, I actually have not read any British critique of it one way or the other, right? I read a Guardian piece that was like, apparently people are upset about this new JK Rowling thing. Um, what I would add as meaningful context to that is that in a recent survey, a majority of British citizens said that they are proud of Britain's imperial history. And that's, I think that's actually really worth sitting with for a while. I think um, no matter how you personally feel about it, I think if you grew up um, in the Canadian education system, you're used to at least, at least this idea that colonialism was bad, that it had really violent impacts and that we should think critically about it. Um, even if it was sort of whitewashed, even if it was presented to you as something that happened in the past and isn't still a problem. Um, and I think what's important to remember is that there, there are a bunch of people in the world who genuinely think that colonialism was good, was a really good thing, and that they are proud of that history. Um, and that's, you know, I'm not, I'm just gonna, just gonna leave you to, to stew with that reality, because I think that that is something that we actually re really need to, to bear in mind when we're talking about colonial critique. I'm going to take another top hat question, <clears throat> which brings us back to the Maria Tatar article that you brought up at the beginning. So this question is about, the dark, I guess, what Tatar posits as the dark state of contemporary children's literature. Uh, the Harry Potter books contain a lot of death, and we d earlier discussed Maria Tatar's view that we are exposing children to too much violence and too much adult material. I understand your position that children are bound to experience these things in the real world, but at what point do you think we start desensitizing children to the, notions, the notion of death? Very few children's books continuously use death as a device to move the plot forward. So what are your thoughts on the use of death as a kind of plot mover in children's books? I think the question really here, Marcel, is when are you going to teach your child about death? <laughs> now? Oh. I just... No. Oh, I'm too sad now. Let's go. <laughs> Sorry. I, I guess, I guess, so, okay, um, uh, so a thing that is true about me is that I have had many close people to me die in my lifetime. I think I'm at around, like, maybe 12 or 15. Um, it's been a while since I've done a roll call, because that's a sad thing to do, and we don't like to do that. And I would say that even though I've experienced it multiple times and encountered it many times in many books, I've never become desensitized to it. At no point has death ever stopped being a major impact on Good the way point. that I live in you the world. You don't desensitize anyone no. to death. No. That's not... That's not how that works. No. And I think, like, we hear critiques about video games and violence in video games and how that can desensitize people, but I'm not convinced that that's... I'm not convinced that that's true, and I'm not convinced that watching lots of movies with lots of um, violence and, and like, murders and, and uh, like, armies dying and war and that... I, I just... I guess I'm just not convinced. I think that there are some people who feel feelings differently from other people. Oh, that's Stop such it. a stupid that's thing to say. That's an outrageous thing no. to say. No, um, like, that we can't feel things differently. Uh, 
I yeah, I would say in fact that what that what literature does is sensitize people to experiences that they may not have had themselves, mm-hmm. right? So rather than thinking of it, you read this thing and you become desensitized to it. It's you read a story about an experience you didn't have and you ideally become sensitized to that experience in a way that then means, you know, maybe you as a young person have not experienced the loss of a parent um, but a friend of yours has. And you may be, having read about that experience in a fictional world, are now able to talk to your friend about that or listen to them talk about it and not get freaked out and want to run away. Mm-hmm. Because you have, you know, maybe been sensitized to that and what it involves a little yeah. bit. Also, the Harry Potter books are not for infants. Right. No. <laughs> They're not. I mean, no, four-year-olds aren't reading aren't no. reading the the later Harry Potter books no. that is an important yeah like some part people two. some people are really good at empathy and some people aren't and it doesn't seem to matter how much exposure they've had to personal trauma and loss some people just do empathy differently and i and And I think that if you are a person, okay, wait, let me backtrack. So our friend Andrew asked us this (laughs) question. Sometimes it's fun to tease him about being a monster because he said that he did not feel moved by the death of Cedric Diggory in book four. And you know what? That's ridiculous because that is a devastating devastating loss. He said, does that make me a monster that that didn't make me sad? And we were like, "Hmm, yeah, for sure. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, and he, but that, but he, I wouldn't blame the amount of Shakespearean text that he has read as a Shakespeare scholar on his lack of empathy for the death of Cedric Diggory. He's just right? naturally a monster. <laughs> he just feels, he just this. does empathy let's, differently. Let's end with this, like, we can read texts in radically different ways and we can make the choice to read, you know, a text in which an experience that seems dark and hard to you is actually an opportunity for you to become empathetic and think about the experiences of other people rather than to think, oh, this is terrible. I don't want to be exposed to anything that hasn't happened to me in my real life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think that we need to wrap up. I'm going to do one more quick question because we have two minutes left. Okay. So the question is, how do you manage and to, how do you manage to produce and record live feeds with children and their needs as well as a household and that entails? And I wanted to ask this question just because it it would allow us to give a round of applause to Trevor and Elliot. Elliot's been doing such like, there's a baby in the room and no one would know it because the baby (laughs) has just been so silent and enjoying the podcast, but maybe we can thank Trevor and Elliot for Trevor does all the tech for which please team. And they've been so great. So, but I think yeah. this question is interesting because it yeah. relates to your, you know, self-identification as lady scholars mm-hmm. and as feminists. So what does it mean to you to be doing all this while, you know, while you yeah. have a family? And It yeah. is, like, I would say that the feminist pra- praxis that has been the most important to the continuation of this podcast has been community. Um, Hannah is an auntie to our baby. Trevor is a, is a co-parent, not just someone who swoops in on occasion to have daddy daddy baby time. Um, we share the work as much as is conceivably possible given the patriarchal system that we live in. Yeah. And we have a larger community of people who will also, you know, provide care and love for this child as well in situations where Marcel and I need to go somewhere where the, where the baby cannot come. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's been, it has been about collaboration and community for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, they say sisters are doing it for themselves, but they also got to do it for each other. Yep. Amen. Okay. You, you talk. All right. Thank you to both the people in this room, but also to the people on the internet for joining us for episode new of Witch Please. You can listen to the rest of our episodes on ohwitchplease.ca or through your podcast app of choice. Special thanks, as always, to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? The robot of our hearts, who accompanied us all the way to Calgary to hold the Hippogriff baby and make sure that our tech got good support good and supported if you want to follow up on any parts of this conversation be sure to hit us up on twitter at oh please we'd love to hear from you um just tell us that you were in the class and you have questions we didn't get around to answering and we will absolutely talk about them on twitter Mm -hmm. um and to the internet we'll be back in two weeks to start our conversation about (gasps) the final book in the series but until then Good job. Good work. <laughs> <laughs>